What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Live from the Nasdaq market side overlooking New York City is Times Square. This is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, Steve Grosso, and Pete Nigerian, co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Tonight on Fast Burning rubber, Rivian soaring in its market debut, so is this the EV stock to bet on? Plus, check out this monster move in Affirm. The stock is soaring in the after hours on earnings. We'll break down the numbers straight ahead. And later, Inflation Nation consumer prices seeing their biggest annual jump in more than 30 years. How you can hedge yourself against rising prices. But first, we start with an earnings alert on Disney. The stock is down 3% in the after-hours trading session after reporting a major miss for Disney Plus subscribers. The call is underway right now. Let's get straight to Julia Borson, who's got the details. Julia. Melissa, that's right. Disney missing expectations on the top and bottom line, reporting earnings of 37 cents per share versus the 51 cents that were estimated. Revenue of $18.5 billion falling short of the $18.8 billion analysts projected. And that all-important Disney Plus subscriber number, the company added just about 2 million subscribers. Now, that was in line with the slowdown that CEO Bob Chapek warned about. He said they, are, they would add in the low single-digit millions but it was still far less than the $9 million that analysts had been hoping the company would add. Now, on the earnings call, which is underway right now, Chapek stressing that the company is focused on the long-term growth of Disney Plus and not on quarter-to-quarter numbers. He said they're still on track to reach their 2024 forecast of 230 to $260 million subscribers. Now, Chapek says they are continuing to invest in new content, announcing the company is planning to increase its annual content spending. They originally said it was going to be between 8 and $9 billion by fiscal 2024. They say it's going to be more than that. They didn't say just how much, but they said they're going to be focusing on local and regional content as the primary driver of that increase. He also reiterated the company's commitment to sports, noting that all of their sports deals have a digital component as well as a linear one, and said they see many opportunities ahead for sports betting. Now, ESPN Plus was an area of strength, the company adding more subscribers than expected, and those ESPN Plus subscribers have higher average revenue per user than anticipated. One thing I have to note here, Melissa, is that Bob Chapek already talked about the metaverse. He said that this is all moving towards their ability to interact with consumers in a metaverse world. So we'll have to talk about that and much more when I sit down with Bob Chapek in a first on CNBC interview. That's going to be coming up as soon as this call is over. I, w- I want to know if there's going to be a Disney World in the metaverse. There has to be. you got to ask them that. I'm sure, I'm sure there sure is, right? Yeah. <laughs> Julia, thank you. Julia Borston. All right. Tim Seymour, you're a shareholder. How do you, what do you make of this quarter? Do you focus squarely on the miss in Disney Plus? Well, I think, first of all, Bob Chapek, uh, as much as we talk about Disney connecting their physical and digital world in the Disney metaverse, right now it's about the DTC business and the subs. And, and that's been where the multiples come from. And, and as a Disney shareholder, I have to acknowledge that this multiple is not cheap. And if, and if you do it on a, a DTC basis and you know, per you know, revenues or seven and a half times, uh, you, you, you get somewhere uh, 
just north of where Netflix is trading in terms of the DTC, you give them, I guess, a better multiple because of the growth. And even though it's slower, uh, they're growing probably twice as fast as Netflix is on an annualized basis, if not more. But um, Bob Chapek should have effectively guided down um, all analysts. And really, I guess that's the issue here. In other words, mm-hmm. I, I think we got the sense that these numbers were going to come in where they did. Uh, and I just think a lot of the street hadn't downgraded. JP Morgan on 119 million in terms of subs. I think if you look around the street, uh, there were some analysts that were late to downgrade those numbers, yet we got this guidance. I think the stock will probably ultimately settle in. Uh, and again, thinking about the stock, the stock traded down on that guide somewhere around 169, 168. Uh, let's see where we go in the after hours here. But I, I do think much of this was flagged. Um, I do think that Disney still is the premium story when you combine both uh, the flywheel of what they have, the studio and the strength of what they've been doing combined with their DTC growth. And, and reaffirming 230 to 260 million uh, by 24 is still extraordinary growth. And yes, they fast forwarded because of COVID. But um, I, I still think this is a place that a lot of people didn't think they would be. So, so I, I stay as a shareholder. These were not mm-hmm. great numbers, but um, we expected that. So Disney Plus has been in existence now for about two years. It's a two-year anniversary of Disney Plus, Karen. So is it fair to annualize the growth that we've seen going forward and compare that to Netflix? Or, I mean, at a certain point, do you say Disney's total addressable market is much different in size um, than, than a Netflix? It doesn't have that mass appeal. So should we assume that it's going to keep growing at the rate that it's growing and or even reach, um, you know, Netflix mass? Right. Well, that's a really good question. I think it's not I don't know they can grow at the rate they were going. I mean, the pandemic, if you're, you know, setting up a streaming service, the pandemic was probably the greatest thing that could have happened to you. So hopefully we're not in that environment again. And so I think the momentum that they had, it just has to slow. Right. I don't think we'll be in that setup that was so favorable to them. Their execution was was excellent. So I don't I don't begrudge them that it's just the environment was so good. I don't know if they can expand their offerings to maybe get a a wider audience. Obviously, the ESPN part is good, but um, it's interesting. I thought maybe Chapik last time when he said that uh, was maybe sort of sandbagging a little bit and it wouldn't be quite that bad. But now we know that he wasn't. And so we know in the future to listen to him very, very carefully, because what he says is probably true. And that's sort of interesting. And just in this environment, when you talk about you're going to be spending a lot and your multiple Mm -hmm. is really high, people are okay with that for a while as long as the growth is there. So it's not I mean, I'm surprised actually it's not down a little more than it is. Yeah, I mean, to Tim's point, to, to what Julie was saying before, you know, the guidance for the subs was exactly it came in pretty much where JPEG said it was going to come in. So I think that's an important point to make, Pete. At the same time, when you take a look at this business and you know that it's going to be spending more and we don't have a figure yet, but it's going to be north of eight to nine billion dollars, which is what they had said it would be before on content. Does this all add up to yeah. to this stock being valued where it's valued? Huh. Uh, well, you're talking to a guy who got out of it around this level when it came up from the 90s. I got out around this level, and now I'm starting to look at it again, Mel. But I think the problem that I run into when I'm looking at this company is this stood, This is a company that for so many years, call it five, six years, going into the last couple of years, this is a company that traded in the teens as far as its P.E. So when you look at this company now and you see where it's trading, and I get it, the streaming, and that's a huge, you know, it's something that we thought that they should have gotten in 
far longer than should have been not just two years ago. It should have been 10 years ago. But that didn't happen, so they've gotten into it for the last couple of years. They've done really well, but the deceleration process is something I think we did expect to see some of that, especially, as Karen was just saying, after we've come out of the pandemic and then suddenly people actually want to get out and be about a little bit. But I think that there's so many different um, elements to this earnings call that, that kind of concern me, quite frankly. Here we are trading in the upper 30s for P.E. I look over at Netflix, who has far more pricing power. They've got incredible growth as well. Just, you mm-hmm. know, Disney, unfortunately, only 2 million subs. So when you really look at added subs, so when you really look at this whole thing, I don't know. I, I still stick with Netflix, and I think that Disney eventually will be a buy, but I think it has to get into the low 160s, maybe even lower than that, before I, I think it starts to get to be an area where I think it makes more sense. Steve? Yeah, so just to pick up on that, the technicals on Disney, support is 167. That's the May low. If you go back to the January low, that's 160. So that's where Pete's looking to pick, it, pick up the shares. That's where I would be a, a, a buyer as well. Probably the middle 160s, I agree with Pete there. But, you know, you go back to where Dan Loeb said they have to spend a lot more on streaming. That was October 2020. The stock moved up 73% from that level to over $200. That's where it got a little frothy. It's been building a base right around these levels. So it's not a terrible entry for Disney, obviously, you want to give it a couple of day rule here, but I, I, you could see a little bit lower prices. But what Netflix doesn't have and Disney does have is that 16 billion in parks. So we get back to a more normalized environment. Netflix is a pure play. We all know that Disney mm-hmm. is never going to get a pure streaming value. But what they are going to get are those added little levers that a Netflix doesn't have. It'll right. never be valued the way Netflix is. Unless, unless it spins off the ESPN and ABC business. And this is exactly what had been rumored since, uh, you know, the summer. Rich Greenfield of Lightshot has written about this in terms of undoing the Cap Cities deal um, and getting that, that pure play valuation and also setting the ESPN side of the business up for sports betting, which is what Chapek had been talking about. Tim, would you like that? We were talking about GE breaking itself up. How about yeah. Disney? <laughs> Well, I, I would like to see that. And I think, the, you know, their, their linear business is something that we all know the direction that that's been going. And, and I do think there are ways to better monetize that. So, um, yes. And, and I think Disney's already taken some bold moves to restructure the company in the last couple of years. So this could make sense. I think Disney um, would like to be in this higher margin, uh, leading edge, call it sports betting world. And, and but distance that from that squeaky clean Disney brand. Um, and again, brands. I mean, Disney is the best brands in the world. I, and I, Pete makes a great point on the valuation. I just want to point out, I think most people should be valuating this company, uh, valuing the company based upon a multiple of the DTC revenues and the legacy business. And I think if you do that, the legacy business is still at 16, 17 times. And then you get to seven or eight or nine times on the DTC, depending on where you come in. And again, Netflix is at seven and a half. So um, I think you do have to look at this company uh, in different pieces. And yes, maybe more valuable in different pieces. All right. Well, we will certainly ask that of the CEO. That interview is coming up later on in the hour. Meantime, check out the move in a firm. Shares are soaring almost 30 percent in the after hours on earnings. The company's call is underway. Kate Rooney's got the details. Kate. Hey, Melissa. Firm shares had been down double digits heading into these results. So more than making up for it after hours with that pop you just mentioned, it's up 
uh, about 28 percent, almost 30 percent here after hours following a beat on revenue, better than expected guidance. Also some new details on that Amazon partnership. So that deal was announced back in August. We knew that a firm was the e-commerce giant's first buy now, pay later partner outside of those credit card issuers. But a firm expanding that, saying that it is officially the exclusive partner for Amazon on buy now, pay later through 2023. A firm will also be integrated into Amazon's digital wallet. It's also open to all U.S. customers. It started as sort of a pilot program back in August. And as part of this deal, Amazon is getting some Affirm stock options as well. Amazon will get some of these warrants up front, but there's also some different tranches, and the majority are subject to certain performance targets and vesting periods. And for the core numbers, guys, first quarter revenue grew at 55% year-over-year, Affirm reporting strong outlook as well on revenue. For the full year, it's looking at around $1.2 billion. That was better than expected. And another partnership, Shopify, also seems to be paying off for Affirm, or at least it did in the quarter. The total merchant volume, or merchant number, increased from 6,500 to more than 100,000 merchants on the platform. They say that was really due to Shopify. Active customers also up 124% year-over-year to 8.7 million transaction, uh, transactions per active customer, though, increased about 8%. So it's still about 2.3% for customers. They're really not becoming the everyday payment method. They're really only using it two or three times um, in a given year. So really for those bigger purchases, gross, gross merchandise volume, meanwhile, GMV, that's a key metric for the first quarter, fiscal quarter, was up uh, to $2.7 billion, uh, up 84%. But excluding Peloton, that's its largest, largest merchant by far, it was up 138%. But like we said, shares soaring here after hours, up about 30%. Melissa, back to you. All right, thanks a lot, Kate Rooney. Pete, do you like a firm? You know, I like it. I've been in it multiple times. I'm not in it now, of course. I missed this huge jump in this on the earnings call. But I'll tell you what, you've got to love a lot of what's going on here. Obviously, the revenue growth. But what I love are the partnerships, Mel. When I'm hearing about Shopify and Amazon, and you're talking about monsters. And this is absolutely something that will be critical for them to grow into the future as well. So I think the sky is the limit for this company. Obviously, we've got to get a company that we're going to see that actually can make money in a much different way than they are right now. But... I still think what you're looking at is a company that's in the very early stages still of growth, and it continues to grow. And you can see by those numbers, 55%. She's talking about some huge numbers there in terms of growth for a company like this. I certainly like it. I'm very disappointed I'm not involved right now. Yeah, you know, I heard this news about the Amazon partnership, and I thought, oh, that's interesting for a firm. It's also interesting from the Amazon perspective in terms of Amazon now having pieces of various companies. It's really putting its money where its mouth is in terms of finding partners and investing in those partners. Rivian uh, is the obvious example in a day like today, but here we have a firm also, Karen, uh, and you got to wonder if this is sort of a signaling a a change in Amazon. I know. That's what I thought. I mean, that's a huge day for them between where a firm's trading and where Rivian is trading. Maybe, you know, with Bezos stepping back from the CEO role, you can get him on fast, Mel, and see, you know, what he's up to, (laughs) what he's looking at. But it is interesting to me how they're using that power. And I don't know if they're trying to, with Rivian, trying to uh, keep out the competition from buying Rivian trucks if they want to take all of that product. I don't know. Or they just have so much money and these partnerships make sense. It could be a mix of the two. That's really interesting. I mean, Affirm, those numbers are just uh, astronomical. The one thing I thought Kate said that was really interesting was about the number of times someone uses it. So 
for a big purchase, like a, a treadmill or a bike at Peloton. I don't know if that Amazon purchase will be, uh, I don't know if people will do that by now, pay later. But um, I mean, that growth is just extraordinary. And I do think we're in the early stages of the buy now, pay later wave yeah. of how people are going to finance things. All right, coming up, Rivian revs up the stock soaring in its market debut. Two of our traders buying into the IPO today. We will break down the action, plus a big battle brewing between the U.S. and Moderna over patent rights for the COVID vaccine. Billions of dollars in potential profits on the line. We'll break down the details. And we are continuing to watch shares of Disney in the after-hour session. The stock is lower. It's now down by about 4.6%, close to after-hour session lows. The company's call is now underway. As soon as the call wraps up, we will hear directly from Disney CEO Bob Chapek. He'll join us live, so stick with us. Fast Money's back in two. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to Fast Money. EV maker Rivian soaring in its highly anticipated market debut. The stock gaining 29% in its first day of trading. Let's get straight to Phil LeBeau with the details. Phil. Melissa, today as Rivian shares were soaring relative to the IPO price of $78 when they first started trading, I kept on hearing from people, this valuation is crazy. And I would often say to these people who stopped me and asked me this question, I would say, well, why is it crazy? And they'd say, well, look at their numbers. They are losing money. They don't have any revenue. And the fact of the matter is, when you do look at the bottom line, at least in the third quarter, what's expected is a loss of up to $1.28 billion revenue, anywhere between zero and $1 million. They're just starting to deliver vehicles. But that's not a surprise. Everybody knew this going in. So why is there so much anticipation for Rivian? Why is there so much appetite out there? Part of it is because of their order bank. They are with 100,000 orders in their pocket from Amazon, which is the large uh, shareholder. They have 20% stake in Rivian. And then you've got the R1T electric pickup truck and the R1S, the electric SUV. Rivian has just over 55,000 of those. By the way, they have begun R1T deliveries, just a few so far. But this is the excitement that people have regarding Rivian, the expectation that electric vehicle sales, they're accelerating. We're going to be up to 1 million by 2023, 2 million in the U.S. by 2025. By the way, 
the previous estimate just six months ago was a million in 2025. So when you take a look at the auto market caps, this is the, the way it ended today. Rivian, a little bit behind General Motors at just under $86 billion. Nobody's close to Tesla at this point, but Rivian is with a lar- does have a larger market cap than Ford. Finally, I want to talk about Ford and Amazon as you take a look at how shares of Rivian did today. Amazon has a 20% stake in Rivian. That's worth about $17 billion today on paper. And then you've got Ford. Its stake, 12%, is worth around $10 billion. Curious to see what happens from here, whether Amazon makes an even greater commitment, as they indicated they did want to buy some more shares, uh, and they are heavily involved in what uh, Rivian is doing. Meanwhile, Ford no longer has a seat on the Rivian board. And there are some questions about how long will it keep its stake in Rivian? No indication they're going to sell right away. But is this something that they're going to hold, I don't know, six months, a year, two years from now? We'll have to wait and see. Melissa? Phil, thank you. Phil Lebeau in Chicago for us on the uh, Rivian IPO. Let's, uh, let's get the boxes up. I want to ask the traders a question. Show of hands. Who are the two traders who bought on the IPO today? Raise your hands, please. All right, I knew it. Um, okay, Steve Grasso, why go in? What, what price did you get it at? So I bought a third of what I wanted to buy today just at the market on the opening. So I didn't get anything allocated, nor do I, did I ask. This is something that I thought about in the last week or so. And I thought that this is, with the EV explosion that we're seeing, there was going to be tremendous hype around this stock. I had said last week on the show that I thought it would trade to 100 on the first day of trading. That was when it was priced at 57 to 62. It did that on the opening and then traded to 120. I think that you're going to see the ebb and flow. This is not for the faint of heart. You're going to see this stock come back in and out. They're going to talk about that original IPO price of $78.00 back and forth. And I think ultimately this is going to be a stock that's going to be two, three, four hundred dollars $400. The valuation is going to be absurd. And there's a dislocation between fundamentals and stock price. And that's been going on for quite some time. The headway that Tesla made in the EV space is going to make Rivian's ascent that much more easy. So Pete, why did you buy? And the second follow-up question, which I'll ask Steve later, is did you sell also today? Yeah, I did. I did not sell. I was allocated on the IPO price, 78. I plan on holding this for a while, Mel. I got it at a, obviously a discount to where it actually opened up. And I'm just confident in the EV market. Uh, you know, even even Ford and GM from that perspective, I, I just think that is the direction we're going. And my portfolio reflects that. I've got a lot of different positions and a lot of EV stocks, charging stocks, those kinds of things. So I, I'm a big believer in this whole space, and I, and I, you know, when I look at the partnerships that they've got, or at least the ownership, when you've got Amazon with 20 percent and you've got Ford with 12 percent, this is the one thing where Phil and I um, didn't get a chance to talk about this, and I know one of the other traders did, and, and was going back and forth. I, I don't think that Ford is looking forward to selling their stake. Obviously, they don't use the technology, but. I don't think this is something they want to sell because this gives them that one more leg in the EV space that they probably would like to hold on to. And I continue to think that this is a space that's got a lot more upside. Obviously, when you've got Amazon and you've got those orders, the 100,000, I don't think that's the end of it. Matter of fact, I think that's the very beginning of it. So I think that becomes a really beautiful partnership when 20% ownership of the company. They have confidence, I think, in this company. And I think this company can go a lot higher. Um, Steve, just real quick, did you sell also today? 
No, I didn't sell. I'm using that backstop at 20 percent with Amazon. All right. Coming up, a big red flag on inflation. CPI posting its highest jump in more than 30 years. And stocks didn't like that one bit. The traders break down the action next. Plus, Disney trading at after-hours lows, down 5%, but the company's call underway. Once the call wraps, we will hear from Disney CEO Bob Chapek. He'll join us in just moments. Do not go anywhere. You're watching Fast Money. Live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. Back right after this. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money, a monster red alert on inflation. The Consumer Price Index for October clocking in its biggest year-over-year gain since 1990. That's more than three decades ago. Stocks pulling back sharply on this news with major averages closing near their lows of the day. The Nasdaq down more than a half a percent, more than a percent, excuse me, and a half. And check out the moves in the other markets. Treasury yields spiking with the two-year climbing back toward its highest levels of the year. The dollar at its highest since August 2020. Gold jumping to its highest price since June So does today's data prove that inflation is more than just transitory and to take it one step further that the Fed might actually consider raising rates faster than what we had been anticipating, Tim? Yeah, and we're underestimating the impact of housing. And I think this is something that people don't really understand, that that the the inflation is actually significantly higher uh, than, than what we're getting here. But, but, but services component of this number, um, massive. And, and so if you look at the core, uh, you were 5.4 now on an annualized when you strip out where we were on the headline. Um, we were, you know, we were at 4.2, uh, essentially a month ago. I realize there's some choppiness in here, but this is really where the stuff is. These are exclamation points. I mean, these are, these are numbers that are, are not, you know, again, central banks have, uh, one of two mandates. Some have two, some have only one. The ones that have only one, are there to fight inflation. Uh, ours has two. Uh, the other is to stimulate growth. And, and they've created a bubble here. And, and we just have to really uh, be vigilant to see uh, which parts of the next wave of inflation are coming. Because labor inflation is not showing any signs of being transitory. Some of this, what makes it complicated is this is a very important social issue, right? If you think mm-hmm. about uh, where labor uh, has been earning and wages have been for minimum wage earners and for lower demographic groups, um, it's been impossible to, to to make a, li- a living wage. I mean, this is a social issue. This is an issue that's not changing anytime soon. Uh, and so good for those that are now making a living wage, awful for the economic outlook for at least where inflation is. Yeah. Um, Pete, what did you make of the numbers? And are we back in a world where, you know, yields go higher, tech stocks are challenged, and here we are bouncing back and forth? <laughs> 
Um, to some degree, I'm still not so sure that the tech stocks have to take the beating that we saw today. As a matter of fact, you look at the Nasdaq down 260. So obviously there's a lot of different names within that, but uh, they were under some hammering. But I think the interesting thing is, I think we should have expected to see sort of a, a number somewhere close to what we got today, Mel, because let's be honest, over the last year, we've watched oil prices go from, you know, literally a year ago, 38, all the way up to 85. Even just over the last month or so in October, we went from 77 to uh, well over 80. So, you know, we, we should have expected some of this. And it's not just crude. It's crude. It's copper. It's natural gas. You go across the board. Tim talked about wage inflation as well. I mean, we're talking about a lot of different areas of the marketplace that are somewhat. I've, I've not bought into this whole uh, idea that this is transitory. I think this is something we're going to have to work through. And obviously the Fed is going to be a part of this whole thing. So I do sort of think right now that we, we are in a very, very gingerly sort of interesting spot, because when you look at the volatility index, even while we were going up, you know, the markets were going up and were record numbers not too many days ago, just two days ago, we're looking at volatility starting to pick back up again. And here we are today. We actually are back there in the mid-18s to upper 18s, and we're, not, we're, we're a sneeze away from 20. And I think that's something that we all have to keep an eye on as well, the volatility index, because that's going to give us a measure of some of the concerns that are out there as well as the kind of movement to be expected. Well, also on the move on the back of the CPI print, crypto, Bitcoin, in fact, hitting its highest level uh, on record, just shy of the $70,000 mark. Many seen cryptos as a hedge against inflation. So why is that? Trade school's in session. Professor Feinerman is at the head of the class. So Karen, take it away. Yes. Well, why is it? it first of all, it, it appears to be a hedge for inflation. So institutions who do think there is inflation have decided, all right, we've got to have exposure to Bitcoin anyway. We have to have exposure to cryptocurrency. It used to be like some would just venture out slowly. Now it's sort of if you don't have it, that doesn't look great. So that's part of it. The other thing is inflation, I mean, uh, for crypto, for Bitcoin in particular, by its very design was um, hopefully, when they designed it, to protect against inflation that all fiat currencies have had over time, right? That's always the downfall of a fiat currency is inflation. And Bitcoin, by its design, there are only 21 million coins that will ever be created. And right now, 18 million or so, I don't remember the exact number, have been mined. So it doesn't, as a currency, it doesn't have that ability to inflate by printing more. And then the third reason why it's going up is just uh, all assets seem to be going up, or at least they were until when we talked about it with producers, maybe around two o'clock or so. I'm not sure exactly. So but all things seem to be rising. Gold, Bitcoin, stocks, housing, everything. Steve, what, what's your inflation hedge of choice? Yeah, so I would be a buyer of companies. Pete started the conversation off with uh, companies that are asset heavy. So all those commodity-based companies. So I'm long those, those names that I've talked about for a while now, Trinseo, uh, WRK, which is Westrock. You could even dabble in a DOW, which is a chemical name. So they have the ability to have pricing power. So they want to raise prices and they have the ability to raise prices quicker than the actual input cost as, it's, as that's rising. Obviously, you don't want to be a buyer of tech companies because you're paying for that future cash flow. And if that future cash flow is worth less in the future, then the stock should, in theory, trade lower. What we haven't seen, though, is any real push in that 10-year yield. So it's thrown everything on its head right now. So unless the 10-year yield 
starts pushing higher, 2% or above, these value assets or value bucket are just going to kind of move sideways uh, until we actually see some real explosion in this, uh, in this temporary transitory inflation environment. All right. Speaking of crypto, check out our special CNBC podcast, Generation Gamble, available now covering the rise of online sports betting, trading, crypto and the metaverse. You can listen by following the Fast Money podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Still ahead, our first on CNBC interview with Disney CEO Bob Chapek. He's wrapping up the company's earnings call. He'll join us live as soon as it ends. And later, Pharma Fight, the big battle brewing between the U.S. and Moderna over the COVID vaccine. All the details next. Welcome back to Fast Money. We are following a developing story. Moderna, the drug maker, locked in a fight with the NIH over its COVID vaccine. Meg Terrell is here with all the details. Hi, Meg. Hey, Mel. So these two entities have essentially been partners on the COVID vaccine, but now they are in a battle over one of the key patents behind it. And this afternoon, we learned from Dr. Francis Collins, the head of the NIH, that it looks like they may take this to court. He told Reuters, quote, I think Moderna has made a serious mistake here in not providing the kind of co-inventorship credit to people who played a major role in the development of the vaccine that they're now making a fair amount of money off of. Clearly, he says, this is something that legal authorities are going to have to figure out. But we just heard back from Moderna telling us, quote, we do not agree that NIAID scientists co-invented claims to the vaccine sequence itself. Only Moderna scientists came up with the sequence for the mRNA used in our vaccine. And Mel, it's not just bragging rights at stake here. This is a vaccine that could draw up to $18 billion in sales this year, up to $22 billion in sales next year. And having NIH scientists on the patent could potentially enable the government to have some say over how this technology is licensed. This hitting Moderna stock a little bit today, it closed down about 3.3%. But look at that, over the last two months, this stock has lost almost half its value. A series of setbacks, it's just been kind of a bad few weeks, few months for Moderna. Mel? So future revenue might be in play, Meg, but I'm wondering if past revenue could be in play as well. Could that entitle the government to claim that some of that revenue is due to the Treasury as opposed to Moderna? Yeah, potentially. You know, we have seen the government sue drug makers before. It's in a suit right now with Gilead over royalties. Uh, It believes that it is owed for um, an HIV drug. Um, That's still playing out. These things take years to go through the court system. Uh, But potentially, we could see the government try to sue for royalties owed uh, from this vaccine as well. We'll just have to see how this all shakes out in court. Fascinating story. Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell, live here with the details. All right, Tim, what do you think? Does this change how you look at Moderna? Uh, not necessarily today. I think that third quarter uh, you know, a week ago is how you, you change. And, and obviously the stock changed. And, and as Meg pointed out, down 50 percent uh, you know, in 50 days. I mean, it's been extraordinary. I think there are two things going on. First of all, the, the downshift from uh, pandemic to endemic, which we're, we're getting, and we're, we're, we're certainly hearing that from people like Scott Gottlieb, is not good news from Moderna. Uh, you know, again, they, they've been leading on the vaccination front, not um, on the, you know, kind of the seasonal uh, flu shot front. And I, I think if you if you look at overall their platform, um, I think what the market is doing is saying, look, here's a company that's done extraordinary work, um, has, has put themselves uh, possibly even at the front of the line in terms of their, their cutting edge biotech. But uh, 
um, the, the valuation doesn't make sense. They've got a platform that's growing. They've got a lot of things in the in the works, so to speak. But they're they're not those you can attach to a valuation mm-hmm. at this point. So uh, I think more downgrades are coming. And, and I think this is all based upon, again, their downgraded outlook uh, on right. 3Q. Um, Karen, you notice the pop in Pfizer today, more than 3%. Yeah, I was wondering, I don't know if that was because low multiple stocks were in vogue or if it had something to do with Moderna. Maybe there would be some pressure on price if the government did have a hand in it. I don't know. So thereby making Pfizer potentially, um, I, I, don't, I, I don't know, beneficiary in some way. I had a question for Meg. We already goodbye the guest, so obviously I wasn't going to ask her. But I'm curious, does, <laughs> is this fight about the mRNA technology used more broadly for, you know, if any other uh, pandemic comes along, or is it very specific to treating COVID? COVID. That's an excellent question. We'll try and get you the answer in the, in the meantime, okay. but we did go by the guest. <laughs> Coming up, we're moments away from our first on CNBC interview with Disney CEO Bob Chapek. He's standing by fresh off the company's earnings call. He'll join us live after this quick break. Welcome back to Fast Money. Here is another check on Disney. Shares are down about 4.5% in the after hours on the back of earnings. The company's call just wrapped up. Let's get straight to Julia Borson, live with Disney CEO Bob Chapek. Julia. Melissa, thanks so much. And that's right. I'm joined now by Disney CEO Bob Chapek. Bob, thank you so much for being here straight on the heels of your earnings call. We're very happy to be back in person. Nice to be here. So, Bob, a lot of focus on those Disney Plus subscriber numbers. The 2.1 million added was in line with what you said would be low single digit millions, but much smaller than the 9 million that analysts had been anticipating. And this does raise some concerns about how you are going to get to those long term goals. What do you anticipate being the drivers over the long term? How are you going to hit those numbers? Right. We reaffirmed our guides of 230 to 260 million households, and we believe that there are two primary drivers of that growth. First one is going to be the expansion into new markets. We're going to double the number of markets that Disney Plus is in in international territories uh, by fiscal year 2023. And the second component is obviously going to be new, fresh content across all of our wonderful Disney franchises. Yeah, a lot of focus on that investment in content. And a question as you think about investing more in local language content, because that was a big piece of news on the call there. Does that mean that you anticipate being able to raise prices internationally? The international subscribers traditionally have lower average revenue per user than the domestic ones. We have 340 new originals planned for our international markets over the next couple of years. So we are making a substantial investment in local content. Uh, We do believe that uh, we offer a tremendous price value to consumers around the globe. And uh, all of our research indicates that. And as such, we think we've got some headroom, if you will, in terms of pricing in the future. Headroom in terms of pricing, but you just had this really big discount that you were offering for Disney Plus. What does that tell us about how Disney Plus subs are doing so far in this quarter and what you anticipate doing in terms of internationally raising prices as well? That promotion was planned a long, long time ago because it's a trial promotion. You know, if, after being in the market for two years, if people haven't tried Disney Plus, we want to give them a little incentive. It's only for 30 days, and we believe that a large number of those uh, subscribers 
will stay on with the service once they see how fantastic it is. And we believe that because our churn rates are extraordinarily low. So that makes it a pretty good proposition to come in and, you know, have a trial type offer like that. Now, one area of strength in those streaming numbers was ESPN Plus. Better subscriber growth than anticipated and also higher revenue per user. You reiterated your commitment to sports in general. What does that mean in terms of what kinds of sports rights you might go by? The NFL Sunday ticket, those rights are out there. Does this mean you're determined to get them? Well, we are in discussions and negotiations with the NFL for those rights. We think they would make a particularly good uh, addendum, if you will, to our ESPN Plus service, given the nature of what they are. But uh, we're very bullish on sports. We mentioned during the earnings call the idea of gambling as a new revenue stream, a newfound revenue stream for us, which we think is spectacular. But as you know, with every one of the new rights deals that we cast over the last year and a half, every one of them has a very significant component for the DTC sports world. And so we're very bullish on ESPN Plus growth in the future. Does that mean you have any more insight into when you might separate out ESPN Plus in terms of totally uh, totally taking some of those rights that are on TV and shifting them over to streaming? We're going to let the consumer be our guide there. The more and more the consumers try ESPN Plus and enjoy it, and subscribe to it gives us the wind in our sails, if you will, to believe that that's really where the consumer is going to go. And so we're gradually making those those types of changes where we take a bit more every month, every quarter into ESPN Plus. And so far, it's been a very successful experiment. Speaking more broadly about the competitive landscape, you have Amazon buying sports rights, you have Apple potentially in the running for those NFL Sunday ticket rights, and then you have Netflix, which has just been investing so much in content, forecasting a very strong fourth quarter. How do you see your services playing into this increasingly competitive landscape? And do you think that's one reason you didn't see the growth that some of the analysts had hoped for this past quarter? Well, I don't think it's just about distribution. I think it's about the brand. If I were a league, I would want my sports rights to sit with ESPN because of what we can do. The Monday Night Football with Eli and Peyton, tremendous, tremendous innovation. It's brought tremendous energy. It's in the cultural zeitgeist. And I think if we can do that as the Walt Disney Company, as Mm -hmm. ESPN, for a sport, then that's basically where I think the rights should go. But in terms of the streaming services in general, do you see your growth as coming up against the growth of Netflix and their investment in content? Is this market starting to get too saturated just for streaming services in general? Well, I've said before that I believe that there will be a couple players at the end of the day that will both be able to do well and be very robust direct-to-consumer services. I certainly think Disney's going to be one of them. Mm -hmm. When you have the combination of our brands, our franchises, great storytellers across each one of those franchises, plus our commitment to this marketplace, I think will be there in the end. Talk to us about the theme parks. Greater operating loss than anticipated. What are you seeing right now, particularly for bookings for next year? We're seeing really great demand, very thrilled with our demand, not only internationally, but especially domestically, but particularly, again, uh, because of our guest experience improvements uh, at numbers per caps, if you will, that are very, very strong and very, very healthy. So not only do a lot of people want to come, but when they come, they want to really engage in Disney. On the call, you mentioned the metaverse. Will we all eventually be paying Disney parks prices to go into the metaverse? What is your vision for Disney in the metaverse? Well, my vision is to use Disney Plus as the platform for the metaverse. I think it really blends our physical 
beings with our digital beings and creates a three-dimensional canvas, if you will, for our creative storytellers to paint so that we can create experiences that otherwise have been defined as it's a park experience or it's a movie experience or it's a book experience. I think those all come together without boundaries, without borders, without constraints, and our creatives are just biting at the bit to get into the Disney metaverse. And just so I'm clear, would this be something where you're wearing a headset, VR goggles? Yes and no. Uh, it could be that, but I don't think that every one of those experiences is going to necessarily have to have a headset on. That is not our plan. So from the virtual world to the very physical world, tell us about what very tangible things in the real world, the constraints you're feeling from supply chain issues and also inflation. How are both of those factors impacting your business? Well, we talked a little bit in the earnings call, a little bit about what's happening to the ad market because of some constraints and like automobiles and things that are electronics have chips in it. We're seeing some of that. We are seeing a little bit of supply constraint in our consumer products businesses. You know, we're in 163 different categories with our consumer products business all over the world. So we definitely are feeling a little bit of a pinch there. But our underlying demand for consumer products is very, very strong because of the strength of our franchises. And just a final question about your theatrical movie business. You just had a big release with Eternals. You have some more movies coming out, which are going to have an exclusive window. But you said on the call that you want to have flexibility. Going forward, how much can we expect your movies to have simultaneous releases, a shorter than typical window, or what is it going to look like? I think the consumer is going to drive us there, uh, just like they have throughout the entire pandemic. And I think flexibility is going to be in order. And uh, we take the reads from all the different stimulus that we get in the marketplace and make our decisions individual title by individual title. So I think it would be a mistake to look at any one particular point in time and extrapolate that and say, well, that's Disney's strategy. Disney's strategy is going to follow the consumer and we're going to make it on the fly as necessary as conditions change. Well, the theatrical business certainly looks very different on the other side of this pandemic. Bob Tapak, thank you so much for talking to us on the heels of your earnings. We really appreciate it and very grateful to be back in person. And Melissa, back over to you. Thank you very much, Julia Borson with uh, Disney CEO Bob Chapek. Tim Seymour, did you get the answers you wanted to hear as a shareholder? Well, I, the, the commitment to, to content, but the commitment to new markets and the understanding that I, I think Disney holds the cards. They have the brands um, and they have this flywheel. So um, they're also in a position where they're going to move with technology. And as, as Bob said, we're going to listen to consumers and we're going to see uh, ESPN is still a wildly wildly powerful brand in sports and and it's just linear tv's demise is not necessarily espn's so i I think again they they control the levers here um new markets and content are the keys to the stock and they've given you a sense that the second half of 22 is going to be very exciting pete you said you'd be looking to possibly get in at around here did he say anything to convince you Mm -hmm. either way well, I think Bob always is very clear about exactly the direction. You said it, Mel. We, we talked about that earlier before the earnings, about what he had promised about what's going on, and, and it's exactly right. So I think we do need to listen to him. I think he's doing an outstanding job of listening about just about every different aspect of the business itself. He even obviously touched on the metaverse and everything. everything. So it's a combination of the betting, the sports, and everything else, and the content. I, um, I'm pretty impressed with what he had to say. I, I do think it's still stretched, but I'm getting a little bit more interested. Tim mentioned the second half of 22. That makes, makes me feel like I've got a little bit of time to think about this. It's not something i got to do in the next 24 hours or something like that. So I think I've got some time. Yep. 
All right, take a look at MasterCard jumping nearly 4% today. Jim is talking with the CEO of MasterCard. You can catch the full exclusive interview at the top of the hour on Mad Money. Plus, Jim tackled the MasterCard trade in today's CNBC Investing Club newsletter. If you are not signed up, you are missing out. All the information to register is right there on your screen. All right, software stocks in the slump today. IGV ETF dropping nearly 3%, and options traders are betting the pain is just beginning. Mike Coe has the uh, action. Mike. Yeah, so in IGV, we saw about 5.6 times the average daily put volume. Most of that was a result of the most active options, which were the November 425 puts. We saw over 5,600 of those trade for about $2.10 a contract. That was institutional buyers seeing blocks of 2,500 and 2,000, respectively, as a part of that volume. Buyers of those puts are obviously betting that the weakness that we saw today in IGB could continue through the end of next week. And actually, the buyers of those puts are already profitable. Those closed the day around $3.60. So this trade is actually up about $825,000 for the buyer already. Karen, just quickly, where are you on that IGB trade that you had on? So I'm short that IGV against, you know, a lot of the FANG names, but also I, I actually more a little more than doubled today the position at the, near the, very near the end of the day because I think the pain is just starting. Multiples have run so far, and so um, I'm short. All right. Uh, Mike, thanks for the action there. Be sure to tune into the full show Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, Final Trades. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim. No surprise, Disney. Look, I heard Bob Chapek say pricing power and aggressive on sports. I like that. Grasso. Rivian, be judicious on your buy limits. I will be as well. Pete. I'm going to give you SSR Mining. Gold, that's the place to be right now. Hmm. Karen. Yeah, uh, you know, I want to look at value stocks when interest rates are high. And to me, right in the center of that is Walgreens Boots, less than 10 times earnings, almost a 4% dividend, and a great management team. So Walgreens Boots, and great job by uh, Julia with that Bob Chapek, fresh off the earnings. Yep, uh, and that stock, by the way, is down 4.4% in the after hours. Thanks for watching Fast. See you back here tomorrow. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.